Okay, good morning. All right, this is going to be a fun one. Let's open up in our Bibles to Revelation chapter 2. We're finishing chapter 2 this morning. Revelation chapter 2, this is to the church in Thyatira. Got a little bit of a long read, so let's get going. All right, starting at verse 18. To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Jesus says, I know your works, your love and your faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my, my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart. And I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold to this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden, only hold fast to what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself has received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Yes, Jesus, give us, give us an ear to hear what you have to say to us this morning. Help us to understand your word this morning, God. There's some kind of confusing verses, and there's some difficult things that you have to say to this church and to our church, Lord, but we trust this is your word, and so we want to be faithful to it, God. We want to hear what you have to say. We thank you that when we read your word, we can be confident that you will meet with us and speak to us. So Holy Spirit, come, fill this room up. Help me to teach faithfully. God, I pray that you would help us to listen to what you have to say to the churches, Lord. AF peak? I don't know what that is. No? I don't know. Help it. Okay. All right. You good? Kind of? Yeah? I don't know. What's going on? Try the other one? Okay. Let's just thank Cody back there. Hello? Okay. All right. Let's do this. Okay. All right. Hey, this is a gnarly verse. This is a gnarly script, part of scripture, but here we go. I have a question for you guys. How would you reply if, let's say, a journalist walked up to you after church today and he said, hey, are you a tolerant person? Are you tolerant? What would you say? What if, what if Jesus walked up to you and said, are you, to- are you a tolerant person? What would you say to him? Think about this. Is Jesus tolerant? What if the reporter asked you that? Is Jesus tolerant? What did Jesus tolerate? Right? What, what didn't Jesus tolerate? And think about this. Why, why is the problem that Jesus has with this church the fact that he says that you tolerate? Like that is the problem. You tolerate. And this question, this question of tolerance, you guys, I mean, that is, that is one of the questions in our culture today. In our society, I mean, that is the issue. And as followers of Jesus, we need to know. We need to know how to respond to these questions of tolerance. And, and this question of tolerance, it's at the center of what Jesus has to say this morning to the church in Thyatira. So let's get going. Let's, let's take a look. Verse 18. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write. So this week, it's our fourth church. We're in the church of Thyatira. I think we have a map up here. 
Yeah, that's our map. So started in Ephesus, went up to Smyrna, Pergamos, and now we're in Thyatira. And unlike, this is kind of fun, unlike the beauty, the coastal beauty of Ephesus and Smyrna, and unlike, if you remember, Pergamos was the center of imperial Caesar worship, and you're also going to find out that Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea, they were all major cities. They were all really important in and of themselves. But Thyatira is a pretty unknown, it's just this little small town. If these, other, if these other cities were like Los Angeles, San Francisco, even Santa Barbara, Thyatira would be like little Carpinteria, just kind of nestled in there. What's funny is that Thyatira, it was on a road in a valley that led towards Pergamos. So people say it didn't even have a lot of value in and of itself, but it served as a gateway city to Pergamos because all of Asia, there'd be roads coming from all of Asia heading to the coast and it would go through Thyatira and then to Pergamos. And so one of the only things Thyatira had going for it, it wasn't physically beautiful. It wasn't that important, but it was this gateway city to Pergamum. And so it had a lot of commerce going through it. Didn't have like worship-wise, physical beauty-wise, there wasn't a lot of importance, but it was this highway, this little town that this highway would run right through it. So the one thing they had going for them, they were economically very strong because if any trading were coming through, they would pass through Thyatira. And we're going to find out in a bit why that's important for this church, why that even like, helped lead to some of the problems they were having in this church. And Jesus says to this church, to Thyatira, and also to us, right? We believe these, these are literal churches, but we believe that this is also to all the churches. This is to the church at reality. So Jesus is going to speak to us this morning. And, and so Jesus says, let's keep looking at verse 18, the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Because this morning, Jesus is speaking. We write the words of the Son of God. I mean, we'd probably all agree, maybe the best part of our church, of reality, is, is we teach the Bible, right? We teach the Word of God. We believe this is Jesus' Word. We're not here to share ideas or even wisdom. We're here to hear from Jesus, right? And, and any one of us teaching from the pulpit, we are only as valuable as we are faithful to the Word of God. Amen? And so even, you know, that's... that's that helps me because I'm not Brit, right? And Brit's not here, but hey, Brit's as good as he teaches the word of God. And we're going to read the word of God this morning. We're going to hear from Jesus. So I'm excited about that. Amen? You guys are ready? And so the words of the Son of God and, and who he is, we get a picture. Remember at the beginning of before the letters, we had this image, this vision of Jesus. And there are all these crazy different characteristics of who Jesus was. And each church gets specific parts about who that is. And Jesus to this church, he says... I'm the one who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Eyes like flame of fire. You guys, our Jesus, he sees all things. Later in this text, he says, I am he who searches heart and mind. Nothing is ever hidden from view of Jesus. And as we read and we're going we're gonna to see the servants in this church, we're committing and hiding many secret sins. And Jesus wants them to know, hey, I, I search your heart and mind. I can see what's going on. I have these eyes like flames of fire. I can see what's happening. And then it says feet like burnished bronze. What's kind of neat is as this city was strong economically, commercially, they had a lot of trades and they were producing a lot of different materials. And so bronze was one of the main exports of this city. So they'd be familiar with fire. They'd be familiar with bronze. And Jesus says, I'm the one who has flames of fire. My feet are like bronze. I know bronze is important to you. It's, that's just what my feet is. And bronze is particularly strong and hard. It, it doesn't corrode. And so this is the idea. We've, we've already said Jesus is saying, I'm sovereign. I'm in control. In, in a couple chapters, we're going to see Jesus trampling his enemies under his feet. Like, this is, a, this is kind of a, a heavy picture of Jesus. My eyes, I see your sin. I'm in control, right? And this isn't the Jesus we, we tend to think about. This isn't the Jesus if we're sharing our faith with an unbeliever. We're like, hey, he sees your sin. Like, we don't, we don't do that. But we see Jesus is called the lion and the lamb, right? And, and we love this picture of Jesus as the lamb, and we should. He's gentle and meek. He says, come to me, all you who are weary. But he is also the lion. He is also just and holy. And he's, as we worship this morning, all of heaven right now is just declaring worthy and holy is the lamb. He is the lion and the lamb. He is ruling and reigning. 
Like, like Aslan in the Chronicles of Narnia, if you've read the Chronicles of Narnia, the kids, they, they, in the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, they just get into Narnia and they find Mr. and Mrs. Beaver and they, Mr. and Mrs. Beaver have them over to their house and they're telling them about Aslan. And, and Mrs. Beaver is explaining Aslan and she's saying how he's big and he's vicious and he, he destroys his enemies and the kids are like, oh my gosh, like that sounds terrible. And they said, is he safe? And I love this quote. Mr. Beaver replies, safe? Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. You guys, Jesus is not safe. He is not safe. And you do not, we don't want to be his enemy when he comes back. We do not want to be on the, the wrong side of his kingdom. But he's good, amen? And he's the king and he's just and he is holy and faithful and true. And now, even now, his, his eyes are watching our church as he was watching Thyatira. And he says, I, I can see and I search your hearts and minds. And as Jesus looks at the church of Thyatira with these blazing eyes, he sees things that are both commendable and he sees some, some major issues in this church. So in verse 19, what does Jesus see? He says, I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance. And that your latter works exceed the first. You guys, somewhere, somewhere along the line in, in, I don't know, if American Christianity or what it is, we've kind of been given the notion, we have this idea that because we're saved by the blood of Jesus, by grace, that actually doesn't really matter what our lives look like, right? Like you're saved by grace, you're, you can't lose your salvation, you're saved, you're safe. And so we can very quickly conclude, okay, so it doesn't really matter what my life looks like. You guys, this church in Thyatira, they understood that's not the case. They understood that Jesus didn't just save us from something, which he did, the wrath of God, the punishment for our sins, but he also saved us to something. He saved us to a life of works and of love and of faith and service and patient endurance. And we should be growing in these things. The same way he said, your latter works exceed the first. And so as we, as we kind of try to unpack a little bit about this church, we should understand Jesus, when, when we get to what Jesus has against them, it's really easy for us to be like, okay, yeah, he's got that against them, against those Christians, against those people in our body. But listen, he's speaking to the, the mature Christians in the church. He's commending them as being mature, as being working, as being faithful, as serving, enduring, and growing Christians. Like these aren't your average Joe Christians. Like as Britt says, they're not your pew potatoes. They, these are the ones who are faithfully serving in the church. So let's think about that. This church was marked by great works. Jesus said, you're gonna do greater works than I did. And they were. And so churches, for us, how are we doing on our works? Right, would Jesus come and commend the works of our church? Would he commend us on our works? This church was marked by love for one another. And how are we doing on love? I think this church, we love preaching truth, but how are we doing on love? Right? Is it truth in love? How are we, are we tr- truly loving one another? He says this church was marked by great faith. Would Jesus commend your faith? The church was a serving church. They, they understood that to follow Jesus, they're not just merely on the sidelines, right, as the leaders or the pastors did the work of the ministry. They understood that the, the pastors equipped them for the work of the ministry, and so they were serving. You guys, how is, how is our service to one another? How many of us are serving in some capacity at this church? And it's not, it's not just about serving in the church, but are you serving one another? Are you serving the world? How is your service? Would Jesus commend your service and say, well done? This church was enduring pain and suffering. This church was growing. It was more holy then than it was a year ago. Like, could Jesus say that about you? Could he say, hey, you have grown. Your works this year exceed the works that you had last year. Can Jesus say that about you? And so Jesus commends this church in these areas. And this is really awesome. These are some huge commendations from Jesus. And yet, if you notice, that's one, it's, he does kind of pass through them. They're awesome, but it's one verse. And then he spends a lot of time on something that he has against them. And he says in verse 20, but I have this against you, that you, and here's the word, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel. You tolerate that woman Jezebel. So that's that word tolerate, permit, if you have the New Living Translation. It just means kind of to, like, to let it be there, to let it lie. 
right? Like a mess in your room, you're just, you're tolerating it. You, you, you're not, you don't hate it, it's just there in your room. It's that mess, you're just tolerating it. This is interesting because that doesn't mean they were all doing what Jezebel was doing. It doesn't mean they were all running after sin. They were just okay to let it exist. It's, as long as it's not me, we're tolerating it. And the you in this verse that you tolerate, that's a plural you. He's talking to the entire church. He's saying the entire, all of you, all of us are guilty of this. It's not some of you are tolerating you, the entire church. This is the one thing in the church of Thyatira that the entire church was guilty of. They tolerated. They were tolerating Jezebel. And as we said, it's, this is the issue. Tolerance is the issue in our culture, right? Are you tolerant? What do you think about this lifestyle? What do you think about this belief? Tolerance is the issue. So to just help us out, think about tolerance. What does that mean? Because it's true, there's different ideas about what tolerance even means. Uh, in the Oxford English Dictionary, tolerance is this, to respect others' beliefs, practices, etc., without necessarily agreeing or sympathizing with it, right? It's saying, I may, I may disagree with you, but I respect your right to believe something different than me. That's, that's how the dictionary has traditionally defined it. I don't agree with you. I may not even believe what you believe, but I'll tolerate you. I'll let you be there. I'll let you exist. But D.A. Carson, he's a, a Christian pastor and, and scholar. He said that in the West, in the, in the past maybe 50 or so years, the idea of, of tolerance has actually changed. It's not that anymore functionally. It's no longer, okay, I respect you, but I don't agree with you. He says tolerance is this. While tolerance, I think we have a quote, while tolerance used to be respecting other beliefs without necessarily agreeing them, in our culture today, it has shifted to mean accepting all beliefs as equally valid, right? It used to be I respect you, but I don't agree. Now, if you're tolerant, it means I, I agree with you. I, what you have to say is true. All beliefs are equally valid, and that's, that's the cultural, that's the air we breathe in our culture. So, so now, if you want to be tolerant, you have to say this. Your belief is as valid as my belief. Your belief is just as true as my belief. In our culture, that's what it means to be tolerant. It doesn't mean you may be wrong, but I, I'll let you be there, and we, and we coexist in a sense. Now it means you have to say that you're just as right as this perspective is this perspective. That's what tolerance is now. That's how it functions in our culture. And that's, that's a significant shift for the Christian, right? Because we actually do believe that we have absolute truth. We actually do believe there's only one way to God and there's only one God. We have some beliefs that are exclusive. We actually believe other perspectives are wrong. And while Christians can hold the first perspective of tolerance, right? Like we, we're not trying to rid the world of all evil and force people to believe what we believe. We know that's not how Christ converts people. He does it through faith and love and service. While we would tolerate them, we wouldn't say this. We wouldn't say that we accept all beliefs as equally valid. And so for us, for Christians in our culture, like we are now intolerant. That's just true. Our culture looks at us and says, hey, if you believe I'm wrong, then you are intolerant, which is, it's actually, it's ironic because our culture's new tolerance is very actually intolerant of any perspective besides itself. And that's the air we breathe. Our culture says the only truth that must not be tolerated is the one that says someone else's view is wrong. And so that's, that's us. That's Christianity. Yes, but we know, and, and just to refresh our minds, we, we know we have to hold absolute truth. We have to stand firm on the word of God. Billy Graham, like 50 years ago, he was talking about this, and he pointed out that while even for our culture, this is a crazy idea that someone could actually be wrong, he says, it, it, that's reality. Everywhere you look, he says, he says science displays absolute truth, right? He, sa- he said, water boils at 212 degrees no matter what. It's not tolerant. It's just what happens. It's simply true. It's just what happens. He says, math displays absolute truth, right? Two plus two is four. It's not three and a half. It's not five. It's pretty, math is pretty intolerant. You're either right or you're wrong. That is true or it's wrong. He says, navigation is absolute, Right? If, if you were to, someone were to come up to you and say, hey, how do I get to L.A.? You could say, oh, go, you know, go any road, take any direction you want. All roads lead to L.A. Like, that's not actually true. L.A. is, you go south. You go south. He said, a, a compass will always point, point to the magnetic north. He said, it seems very narrow view, but a compass is not intended to be broad-minded. He said, if it were, all the ships at sea and all our planes in the air would be in danger. Right? They're simply... Th- Things in reality that are true or they are not true. 
And he's, he's making the point that how much more so would God, who created these things, who created math and science and direction and navigation, how much more would that God be absolute? How much more would what he says is true be absolutely true, right? And, and so what are some areas, just to refresh ourselves, what are, we're just going to say two, two areas in Christianity that we know this is absolutely true. God says that there is one God. He says there is one God, and that can't coexist. There can't be one God and at the same time be many gods. God says in Isaiah 45, I am the Lord and there is no other. Beside me, there is no God. We know another way. There's one way to God, and that's through the blood of Jesus. Jesus said, I am the, the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. God has said that. He has said there are absolute truths. And, and as Christians, when we declare this, our culture will call us intolerant. That is true. That's definitely true. But you guys, here's the thing. In a world that gets tolerant so backwards, in a world that's it's so ironic about how they think about tolerance, and where, where we are actually in some senses seen as bigoted and crazy and intolerant, you know, it would be really easy for us and a really natural response to spend our time right, like arguing with the world and defending ourselves and pointing out how they're logically inconsistent and, and just kind of live in that frustration like, ah, oh, the world, like they're wrong, they're thinking we have the word of God and, and they're not listening. It's, that would be so easy, right? Yet in, in our world that has, that has made a fatal error in regards to tolerance, listen, the church has made an even bigger error in regards to tolerance. And that error... You guys, is Jesus' charge to the church in Thyatira. He says this, you tolerate that woman Jezebel, right? When we think about tolerance, we can think about how the world is intolerant, but Jesus says this, while you're busy, frustrated with how the world is intolerant, you are tolerant. You are tolerant with your own sin. You're tolerant, you're tolerant of false teaching in my body. He says, yeah, you're right, the world is wrong, but what do you expect? I have an issue with you. I have an issue with what you tolerate. He says, I have something against your own church that you tolerate sin. You guys, we can't, as Christians, we can't get the issue of tolerance backwards. It's so easy. We, we must be very, very tolerant to the world. We have to be. Think about Jesus, right? He didn't just tolerate the world. He actually pursued it and came after it and loved it and served it. And he knew they were wrong. But he didn't just tolerate the world, like, okay, I'll, I'll tolerate them. He ran after them, and he served them, and he died for them. So as Christians, we can't get that backwards. We have to tolerate the world. We have to do more than that. But at the same time, we must have zero tolerance of our own sin, right? We must have zero tolerance within our own church. And this church got it backwards, right? They got it backwards. They... They had tolerance within the church. They had tolerance within their own body. And you guys, we're called to be like Jesus. Like Jesus, we are called not just to tolerate, but to love and serve the world. We need to be tolerant of other religions. That's actually true. We don't believe that you put a gun to someone's head and say you believe in Jesus. That's not going to help. We need to tolerate them. And we know it's through love and service that they will come to know Jesus. And like Jesus, you guys, because who is Jesus hardest on? It was those like within the, the church, within the circle, within those who thought they were in, the Pharisees, those who were intolerant of the world. That's who Jesus was hard on. And so we should be far less tolerant with ourselves and far more tolerant towards the world. And so that leads us to Jesus' word to Thyatira. So, so what, what was Thyatira tolerating? So let's look at verse 20. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching. So, so Jesus was upset. They were tolerating this woman called Jezebel. So who, who is Jezebel? If you are familiar with the Old Testament, you'd recognize that name. There was actually a, a queen, a wife of a king of Israel, and her name was Jezebel, and she's pretty infamous in the Old Testament. She was infamous for she wasn't an Israelite. Ahab was disobedient. He married another, the, the daughter of another king of a foreign nation. And she was an idolater. And 
She first led Ahab astray to worship idols, and then she changed the entire culture of Israel and led them to worship idols. And it was her prophets of Baal that met with Elijah on top of Mount Carmel, right? And they had that whole face off. Like, that was Jezebel. Jezebel was intimidating, though Elijah was confident on the mountain that he then found out, oh, uh, Jezebel wants to kill you. And and then he was afraid. And then he ran away. I mean, this was an intimidating, powerful woman who led many astray. And there's apparently a woman in this church who, like, like the Old Testament Jezebel was leading people astray, she is now leading God's people astray. She's now leading the people within the church away. And, and notice this, she calls herself a prophetess, right? She calls herself, and she calls herself a prophetess, right? You guys, Satan's strategies, they're not always just blatant, like in the face of God, like, okay, that's clearly Satan, right? His strategies are actually very subtle and they're going to look like God. Satan constantly tries to disguise himself, right, as an angel of light. He's trying to disguise himself as as helping us see the, the right way to God, right? He's just these slight distortions. And so within the church, you know, okay, if someone's demon possessed, we'd be pretty clear, like that's from Satan, but we'd be much less clear on like, wow, that's just a slightly off teaching, right? Is, is that satanic? Is that from Jezebel or not? And, and they had someone in their church who was doing that. And so what was this Jezebel doing? In verse 20, she's seducing, teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual morality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. You know how you can tell a, a true prophet from a false prophet? I mean, look at the fruit, right? Look at the fruit. If a, if a prophet is truly speaking the words of God, we know it's going to lead God's people towards, towards God, towards holiness, towards what his word says, right? But if, if a prophet is speaking words that are, are leading people to sin, you know they're a false teacher. And we see the fruit of Jezebel's teaching was sexual immorality and idolatry. So first of all, it's, you know, if you really take a step back, it's like, what in the world? Like how, this is, remember, this is mature Christians. They had works and they had faith and they had love and they were growing and being sanctified like how in the world could they be deceived to such a point where they're literally going and committing sexual immorality and idolatry? And this is actually, this is cool. This is where studying a little bit of the context of the city helps you get a, a bigger picture of like what was happening. So we know this. All the commentators know the issue in the church of Thyatira was this thing called the guilds, the trade guilds. So while as an economically strong city, most people made their living producing some kind of material if you remember, Lydia in Acts was from Thyatira. She was a seller of purple cloth. So economically, that was your life. Everyone was in that business. And so in that day, people didn't have things like insurance. They didn't have social security. They didn't, they didn't even have, if you weren't a Christian, they didn't even have a huge sense of community. And so what they would do is whatever craft you were in, whatever prof- like profession, okay, I'm into metalworking or I'm into selling purple cloth or whatever, they would form a guild and it would become their community. It would become both economically feasible. They would all pay dues. And if someone got sick, they would take care of them. Or if you were to die, they'd take care of your family. They keep, they're, they're all together, motivated to keep the, their industry going. So they would, they would pay these dues. But also what they would do with these guilds, because it was their sense of community, it was also became their sense of worship. Like they would create idols of whatever, you know, okay, this is the bronze idol and he, we serve him. And so they would every once in a while, like pretty frequently, they would have these meetings where they would start off with a meal to their idol, to their God, the bronze idol. And so they would perform, you know, have a priest and they'd sacrifice to this God and then they would eat it. And in that, in that culture, eating that food was the act of worship. It's kind of, it was like communion. This is an act of worship. And so you would do that and then they would, it's pretty well known, they would turn into these pretty crazy parties and they'd get drunk and sexual immorality was like very common at these parties. And that was, what it, that was the same thing. If you were in a guild, that's what you did. That was, that was how you lived. That's how you worshiped. So imagine this. This is, I mean, imagine this. Imagine you live in that day and you're a seller in purple cloth and, and you're p- participating in this. And one day your coworker, Lydia, like she's acting different and she's actually really excited. And she's telling you about this man, Jesus, who died on the cross and he wants to make you new and forgive you and, and change your life. And, and you can see it but she's actually leaving the guild and you're like, okay, what's going on? And, and so you, you get saved and you believe and God grants you faith and you're a Christian now. 
And so she's like, okay, we, we gather on Sundays. And so we don't gather like this. We gather together and we worship Jesus. And so you're at church the first time and you're like, this, what's happening? And, and you, you leave church that day and you think, you're like, wait, that my guild meeting is coming up next week, right? And I'm, I know I'm going to go participate and, and worship these idols and be asked, expected to, to do these things. You know, what do you do? What, if that's your culture and you were saved and, and that's what's expected of you, what do you do? And one commentator writes, he said, it was economic suicide to reject the minimum requirements for guild membership. Essentially saying this, if you want to survive financially, you, you join a guild. If, you, if you're not in a guild, like you will not make it. You'll, you're going to lose your job. You're going to lose your insurance. You're going to lose all of your benefits. And that was something that legit, this church was facing. Now, you know, for us, I'm sure none of our jobs, hopefully, are requiring us to sacrifice to an idol, right? Or commit sexual immorality just to keep your job. But, but Jesus does ask this. How, how often, like, do we consider the way in which we do our work will, will either honor or dishonor the name of Jesus? Like, do we think about that? Because we, we know following Jesus, it's not just Sunday. We know that. It's not just a Bible study. Jesus says, I want your whole life your whole life is a living sacrifice to me. Your whole life, holiness, that's, that's what it means to follow me. So here's a question. Would you be willing, would you be willing to face economic suicide to follow Jesus? Like if that were your two options, would you be willing to do it? And that was what the church was facing. And then you go back to church and you're really concerned about this and you're sharing your troubles with some of these Christians and, and they ask you, hey, have you met Jezebel yet? And you're like, no, who's Jezebel? And they say, okay, you have to meet her. So you meet her and, and she's, you find out, okay, she's a prophetess and God actually speaks to her and he's revealed to her that because you are saved by grace alone, by the blood of Jesus, that nothing you can do like, will ever make God more happy with you and even when you fail, God's not gonna be mad at you. She says this, because you're saved, you have freedom in Christ. You are free to live however you want to live. You can actually have both. Jezebel says you can follow Jesus and you can be a part of your, your guild and you're not going to lose your job. Now, if that were you and you were just stressed, like, am I going to quit my job? Like, that sounds like pretty good news, right? Like, that sounds like, well, that's gospel. That is good news to me, right? And you find out, oh, she actually has these meetings at her church, um, on like Wednesday nights. And so she says, hey, why don't you come and I'll teach you more. And, and God usually speaks to me. And so you go and she doesn't only tell you, you can stay in your guild and, and practice sexual immorality and idolatry. She says, we can actually do that here right now. And she was literally leading and it says seducing the servants in, in that way in her home, like she, that she wasn't just false teaching. She was seducing student or seducing Jesus' servants herself. Like that, that is heavy. That's, that's a heavy thing. And so Jesus, Jesus said, the church knew this was going on. They knew who Jezebel was. They, not all of them were participating, but they all knew. And Jesus says, I have a problem with your church, and it's this, that you, like imagine if he looked at us all, and he said, you are tolerating this. You're letting this happen. You are all guilty. You allow this to happen. You know what? What else is heavy? When I was just kind of meditating on that. She's, she's not just seducing like the fringe of the church. What does it say in verse 20? It says, she is seducing my servants. Remember, this was a growing, a serving, a faithful, working church. And it was the servants, like the leaders, like those who are leading worship, those who are leading our kids in youth group, like her servant, the servants of the church. That is who she was seducing. That is who she was leading astray. You know, and it's so easy when we hear of like something as, as heavy as that and sin like that, it's so easy to be like, oh, wow, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm immune from that. Like I am a servant. I, I've been faithful. I'm, I'm mature in Christ. I would never give in to that. But apparently being a good, serving, faithful church member doesn't make you exempt from this temptation. It doesn't make you exempt from even tolerating or even participating in these acts. And so... As Jesus is speaking to this church, I believe Jesus at least wants to ask our church this. You servants, you who have been faithful, you who are growing in, in Christ-likeness, you who have been here for a long time, what are you tolerating? Are there people or habits that you, you just allow to be there as, as a constant source of temptation? 
Are you, are you not just tolerating? Are you actually like the servants of this church? Are you okay with even just a little bit of sin in your life? Jesus is asking, are you okay with even just, just flirting with the boundaries with a coworker? Are you okay with just every once in a while, a li- you know, online where you shouldn't be? Are you going a little bit further than you know you should in a relationship with a boyfriend or girlfriend or fiance? He says, are your eyes even lingering? Are you okay with tolerating even just a little bit of sin? And you guys, none of us, none of us are beyond that. None of us are beyond being tempted and led astray in that way. So I believe Jesus at least wants to ask us, are are my servants at reality tolerating these sins? Are they being led astray into these sins? And may, may we as a church never, never think that because, man, I've been serving, like I'm a servant of God. Look how God is using me that somehow we get a pass on holiness, right? Honestly, we can easily think I spend hours of my life. I just spend hours of my life pouring out and serving. I, th- I deserve a little extra wiggle room, right? Like don't we, aren't we at least tempted to go there? Like look at all that I did today. Look at how hard I worked. And you get home and you're tired and even just a little bit of wiggle room, it's like, you guys, when I go, I try to run as much as I can, and I'll run in the morning, and I'm feeling so good, and then so I just feel justified the rest of the day, like, I'm going to eat whatever I want, I'm not going to do any, I'm just, I'm justified, I ran today. And so I end up eating way more terrible food and living way more unhealthy than if I didn't even go running. You guys, that's a temptation for serving Christians, that's a legitimate temptation for us. And Satan will lie to you and say, you worked hard, you deserve it. Treat yourself to just a little bit of this. Tolerate just a little bit of this. God certainly won't care as much because look how much God's using you, right? Like, God, use me today. Like, and then you give in to a little bit of sin and then he uses you the next day. Like, oh, wow, maybe this doesn't really matter as much as we think it does. You guys, and there's, there's two fatal flaws in that. The first flaw there is thinking that something we do justifies our sin before God. Right? You see that subtle little sin that, that because I've been faithful and because I've been serving and because God has used me, that somehow I'm a little bit maybe more justified. I'm a little bit more righteous than everyone else. And so I can kind of balance out. You guys, we know God said, if, if you want to offer up to me righteous deeds of your own for, to try and forgive your sin, he said, those are filthy rags. I, don't, I do not want them. He's not saying don't grow in righteousness, but he's saying if you want to offer those up to me as, as your own forgiveness and atonement of sins, like I do not want it. And the, the second one, it's, it's so basic. The second flaw is this, you guys. Sin is simply intolerable for a Christian. That's, that's just the truth. Jesus says you must not tolerate sin in your life. You guys, Jesus' blood not only forgives us from our sin, it actually, it changes us and it makes us holy. You get that? Because we love preaching the gospel. It's so easy for us to just meditate like, I'm forgiven, all my sins are gone. And we, we forget that the grace is actually to continue to change us and mold us into the image and likeness of Jesus. It's so easy to forget that second step and, and to be okay with sin in our life. Now listen, we all sin, right? We all sin. Every one of us sins. Every one of us struggles with sin. Every one of us is tempted. And being a Christian doesn't mean you don't sin. But being a Christian does mean you are not okay with your sin. You're not okay to just tolerate it. And, and what we do with our sin as Christians, there's, there's a, a beautiful word. We repent of our sin. And that's verse 21. Look at that. I gave her time to repent. Just think about that. Think about who Jezebel was and what she was doing to Jesus' children, and look at how gracious Jesus is. Just think, look at how gracious he is and patient he is. Like, that is Jesus' heart. I gave her time to repent. Jesus offers every one of us this grace. Even the worst of us that we can possibly imagine, he is offering time to repent right now. In 2 Peter, it says, the Lord is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. You guys, Jesus' heart is is patience. He is slow to get angry. He wants us to repent. And and we are probably all familiar with what repentance is. It's it's changing your mind and your behavior from your sin and turning to Jesus. And it's, it's not like somehow your action makes you right with God, right? It's the blood of Jesus alone that makes you right with God. 
but we still are called to turn from that sin and enter back into following Jesus where the, the grace and forgiveness is, you guys. And what marks a Christian, what, what, if you want to know what a Christian is, if you want to know that person's a Christian, this, there's one way to know for sure. They are repenting constantly. They are constantly repenting. They are constantly heartbroken over their own sin. They're aware of their own sin. They hate their own sin. You, you, we're called to do that. We're called to hate our betrayal to God and to people. We, we will continue to fail and to fall, but listen, to be a Christian means you repent. And Jesus saying here, repent. And he said to Jezebel, repent. And he says to us, repent. And he says to Christians, repent, right? Repentance is not just the sinner's prayer and you're good. Repentance is every single day reminding yourself, turning from your sin and reminding yourself of the grace of Jesus, Repentance is not just for the worst of sinners. Repentance is for the best of sinners. It's for the, the people we would think, wow, they're so close to God. Repentance is for all of us. And just to remind us, you guys, of the, the glorious grace of God is this. All of us have sinned against God. Our God is, is gracious and slow to anger, but he is also holy and righteous and just, and we have sinned against him. Yet because he is slow to get angry and patient, he came and he sent his own son to die for every single sinner. That if any sinner would, would turn to Jesus and repent from their sin, they would be completely forgiven. Every sin, past, present, and future. The sin you're gonna commit in 50 years if you're still alive, paid in full. And Jesus says, believe, repent, and believe that. And if, if you have not followed Jesus, if you've never believed in Jesus, listen, Jesus right now, his heart for you is repent. He says, I know you're a sinner. Think about it. You're, you're probably not doing what Jezebel was doing. And he gave her an opportunity to repent. He's saying to you, if you've never been to church before, if you've never believed in Jesus, he says, I know your sin, but listen, I love you enough that I would take your place and I would be punished for you. Simply repent and turn to me and believe. And Christian, I mean, repentance is harder for the Christian right? But Christians, none of us, listen to this news, none of us have blown it too badly to repent. None of us have let down our Savior so much that there's no hope for us. Like, I gave in to sin. Jesus still graciously calls us as Christians to repent. You guys, but because God is gracious and while he is slow to anger, as we read these next verses, we're going to see that there will come a day when that time to repent runs out. And he will judge sin that has not been repented of. So in verse 21, let's keep reading. I gave her time to repent, but I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. Man. You guys, the justice that Jesus gives here, it fits the crime. Look at that. He's essentially saying, Jezebel, you want, you want to be in bed all the time? He says, I'll put you in a bed, but it'll be a bed of sickness. You guys, the very place where Jezebel was leading others to sin becomes her place of judgment. You guys, God hates sin and he judges sin. And then he says, he's going to strike her children dead. Now, honestly, you guys, like every commentator I read, they're like, we don't know what that means. But, but they have a couple ideas. And, they, and this is what we know for sure. We know God is just, right? We know he's never, he doesn't punish the innocent. It's not like she has children who are good and he, and he says, because Jezebel's so bad, I'm gonna kill all her children. That's not what he's saying. God is just. He never punishes the innocent. We think her children were probably her disciples, like her spiritual children in that sense. And, and we see Jesus even says, unless they repent. A third thing we know is all of us will be held accountable for sin, including her spiritual children. And fourth, at the very least, let that statement communicate this. Sin is a big deal. Like, it's a big deal. Big enough that Jesus said he'll kill her children because of it. Now, we don't know exactly what that means, but it's not a good thing. Sin is that big of a deal. And then Jesus continues. He says, and the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart and will give to each of you according to your works. Jesus, his eyes like fire, he sees and he searches all of our sin. You know, and this is a pretty heavy text, but the very fact, think about it, that Jesus is speaking to these churches is grace. The very fact that he is 
offering them repentance is grace. It shows he loves the church and he's trying to offer grace. And so he searches their mind and heart for their good. He's willing, willing to use hard words and warnings for the good of his bride. You guys, and think about this. It hurt, like, it hurt to prepare this sermon. Like, oh, and then he just keeps going and going and going. But, but Jesus, he's like a surgeon here, right? He's like a surgeon and his word is like a scalpel. And he's saying, hey, you are sick, church. And I'm gonna put you under the knife to save your life. And that's a painful thing. If any of you have had surgery, it's a painful thing. But it may save your life. And that's what Jesus is saying. He says, I love you and I care enough to say these hard things in this word because Jesus loves you. And then he, he continues a little bit longer to make it difficult. And he says in verse 23, I will give to each of you according to your works. Okay, that's kind of a doozy because is he saying there that we're saved by our works? Like if you do good works, you're gonna go to heaven. If you do good works, you're gonna be rewarded. And if you don't do good works, you won't. And, and we know from the whole Bible, we believe this whole book is God's word. It's clear in other places that no, we're not saved by our works, right? We're saved by the blood of Jesus alone. We're justified by his grace alone. But we also know that salvation, like we've been saying, it will lead to works. It will. You cannot be saved and, uh, and not produce fruit. Like it's impossible. If you're a tree that, pro- that produces apple trees, you will produce apple trees or you won't. You cannot be saved and not produce works. James talks about that. Faith without works is dead. And so his point here is you're not saved by your works, but your works show the fact that you know me. And he, what he's also getting at here is, is a sense of rewards, right? We know as we're all saved by grace that if we are faithful in this life, we will be granted, we're granted rewards. If you've been faithful with a little, you'll get a little. If you've been faithful with much, you'll get much. The parable of the talents. Some got more rewards than other, and that's based on a life of, of faithfulness. And then as he's, he's wrapping up in verse 24, he says this, but to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden, only hold fast what you have until I come. Guys, that is the call to us as, the Christ, as Christians. Hold fast, right? The battle is won. Jesus is on his throne we know he's coming again, and we're called to simply hold fast. Have you guys seen Lord of the Rings? At the end, um, they're, they're in the volcano, and they're about to destroy the ring, and there's this battle, and Frodo loses the ring into the fire, and, and so the ring dissolves. And, but as, he's, as he does that, he was fighting, and so he's just hanging on on the cliff. His like, fingers bit off, and he, it, was, it has been the longest journey of his life. And Sam, his friend, runs up to him, and Frodo's looking up at him, and you see like this look of hopelessness. Like, yes, I know the battle is won, but like, I'm tired. And Sam says, don't you let go. Don't you let go. The, you, like, you, you did it. The victory is won. Just hold on. Just hold fast. And you guys, as Christians, we know that. We know the battle is won. The victory is in Christ. He has defeated sin and Satan and death. And our call is to simply hold fast what we have until he comes back. And Jesus offers two ending promises to to you. If you hold fast, he says, to the one who conquers and who keeps my works, to him I will give authority over the nations. This is according to their works. They're being given authority over the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself has received authority from my father. And Jesus is saying, I'm gonna rule and reign and you're gonna rule and reign with me. And then the second promise is this, and I will give him the morning star. Guys, in the morning star, when we're wondering what is the morning star, we see at the end of Revelation, Jesus says, I am the morning star. You guys, and so often our motivation can be hold fast to make it to heaven, right? And that's okay and good. But Jesus says, I am the reward. I am the great reward. I am what you have to look forward to. More than just perfection in heaven and lack of suffering and being reunited with, united with our friends and family, more than all of those blessings, more than even getting the authority to rule and reign, Jesus says, I'm going to give you myself, the morning star. And so this morning, as we, as we head into worship, let's, let's pursue Jesus as our great end. Let's pursue Christ as our great and morning star. If there are areas in your life where you have tolerated, where you should not have tolerated, Jesus graciously says, repent. Repent, there is time. I want you to repent because I love you. If, if some of you have been led astray, 
by even Satan or your own flesh to give in to those sins. And, and don't we all in the moment, we say, well, I know the blood of Jesus is over me and so I'm going to do this. Jesus says, turn from that and repent. And if, if you've done nothing else, if you're walking faithfully and if you have works and you're conquering, hold fast to Jesus this morning. Come and worship in his presence more than looking forward to any other reward. Look to Christ himself, amen? Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your hard words this morning that because you love us, you're, you're willing to come and speak difficult things to us sometimes to save us, to rescue us, God. I pray that our church would not tolerate as a church in Thyatira did, Lord. May we be marked by love and tolerance for the world, but not tolerance for our own sin. God, may we never tolerate areas even in our body that are not healthy, Lord. May we pursue that and speak truth into that and, and call our brothers and sisters to repent. Lord, right now, may we repent. Every one of us, Lord, we have sinned. If we don't know you yet, grant us the grace to repent and know that you have died and taken our place. And yet, if we know you, Jesus, I pray that we too would repent, that Holy Spirit, you would move and convict us in ways that only you know. Your, your eyes see our life. Your eyes see the hidden sins, the hidden desires in our heart. Jesus, help us to repent of those things. You are so good, Jesus. And I pray this morning that more than anything else, we would, we would hold fast to you, Christ. We would look to you, the morning star, as our great joy and reward and our in our end, Lord, I thank you that you are coming soon and we will be with you. We'll be with you on your throne and we're gonna rule and reign with you, Lord, and we're gonna have you. We're gonna have the joy of being in your presence, God. Help us to worship you now, Spirit. We thank you. We thank you, Jesus, for who you are. Thank you that we can boldly approach you now because of your great mercy and blood poured out for us. It's in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You guys, we have communion up here at front. Come, take it, repent. Have that act of worship. Jesus was broken and his blood was poured out. If you need prayer, to, the, the Bible says confess your sins to one another. So come confess to the, to the prayer team. Confess to whoever you're sitting next to. And let's, let's run after Jesus. Amen.